So we start off, uh, Joe, with people introducing themselves, telling us about them, their, their background and, and what they're interested in, and we'd love to hear from you. Great. Okay. Well, thanks very much. So, so now my, my name's Julian Elliott, although people call me Joe, but it's Julian um, is my real name. And I, um, I, my current role is Professor of Educational Psychology uh, and also Principal of Collingwood College at the University of Durham, which, in, which is England's third oldest university. Um, and uh, basically it got stopped by Oxford and Cambridge for quite a few centuries. Um, we tried to get this university in the north of England off the grounds and, and, and Oxford and Cambridge blocked it. Eventually though we did this. And so um, it's a beautiful um, university in the far north of England with a, one of the world's greatest cathedrals. Anyway, so I'm, I'm based there. I trained as a teacher from 1973 to 77. Um, and after being a teacher, I, um, I was a child psychologist in kind of clinical practice, basically what you might in America call a school psychologist, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I went into the academic world. Um, and really, in, this, in relation to dyslexia, I think the issue is that when I started teaching children in special ed in racing in the mid 1970s, this firstly, it was um, adolescent girls in a kind of girls prison of sorts. And then secondly, um, in a disadvantaged city in the north of England, basically what were called then skinheads, um, you know, young people with um, cropped hair who were pretty disenchanted with schooling. In both those, in both those contexts, um, a number of children I worked with were identified as having dyslexia. Um, and I was really intrigued by this because they had clearly had problems with literacy, but there was a bunch of other kids um, who, who also had similar sorts of problems who weren't so identified. So really 45 years ago or so, um, I began to think, well, what's the difference between these dyslexic kids yeah. and these other poor readers? Um, and then after I'd done that for, for some years, I trained as a child psychologist. And I kind of had the idea that once I finished training, uh, I will be able, as an educational psychologist, basically that's babies all the way through the 18 year olds. Um, once I finish this training, I'll be able to know a dyslexic child when I see one. I know how to diagnose it and I know what we do about it. So I did the training um, and at the end of the training, I thought I wasn't really any wiser. Um, and then I practiced in that role for about five years and, and really felt a bit of a fraud because people were asking me, to, you know, could you have a look at little Jimmy or little Sarah? Because I think she might be dyslexic and I didn't really know what to do about it. And I kind of thought... The knowledge is out there, the expertise is out there. It's just, I like this. So what, there's a bit of what you might call imposter syndrome. So people giving me these referrals, I didn't really yeah. know what to do about it. Um, and then after I'd done that for some years, I then went into, into university college education and I was running programs, both for initial teacher training, but also for, for teachers in service. And again, I was running these kinds of programs and people asking about dyslexia. And I still felt I didn't know what on earth um, I was doing that, that I somehow lacked the knowledge and skills to identify the dyslexic kids. To cut a long story short, um, uh, I wrote a, a book um, and I included dyslexia in, in the book, um, and, but then wasn't very happy with this book really. Um, so I, we, it won an award actually, but it, the dyslexia chapter was quite weird, uh, weak I thought. So when I did the second chapter, 2004 now, so, so this is some years I've been mm -hmm. out and about for 25 years in professional life um, at that time, more than 25 years. 
And, and I, when I wrote this book, I thought, I'm going to nail dyslexia. I'm going to understand what it is. I'm going to understand how you assess it. I'm going to understand what you do about it, how you help people, what the prognosis is, et cetera, et cetera. And so I really, really studied it very, very closely. All the questions that have popped up over the 25 years. And at the end of this, that is when the penny dropped. It was like a road to Damascus realization that actually the whole thing was, was really... Um, highly problematic and really had to be challenged. And so I thought that the following year, um, I was asked to make a TV, uh, join in a TV program on national television called the Dyslexia Myth, which you can get, but you can't get it through, um, the, the, if you Google it, you, you get, you'd get a weird kind of, uh, you get a weird site. So that someone's put another dyslexia video which says the opposite of what I'm saying, and they've managed <laughs> to get it on top. It's like cuckoo in a nest. So you have to sort of go to YouTube, but it is a really good program. It's now, what, 15 years old? It was mm -hmm. 2005 it went out. It's 15 years old and it's still as relevant now as it, yeah. as it was then. So I would say, try and find out if, if anyone's interested, you might want to have a look at this program. Um, and it involves interviews with many of the leading people in the world. So it's dyslexia myth, it's called Channel 4 Dispatches. And it features a case of a, a little girl from North Yorkshire um, and uh, problems that she has and investigations around her. So, so I just would like to recommend that. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, well, where, I, that's where I got to. So Joe, I, I just want to go back one tiny step before, because I think that for myself, I've been a, a building leader. I've been a principal supervisor. I'm now working at a state level here in the United States, uh, working on school improvement and dyslexia does you know, come up. It especially comes up from families. But my question would be, who invented dyslexia? Where did that even come from? I don't actually know. Yeah, well, it sort of came from there were, the, the main time, really the main thing that was, uh, was in the Victorian age. And around yeah. the time of the Victorians, there was something a little bit before, but basically the real interest came in the Victorian times. And this was because as the second half of the 19th century, um, kids were beginning to go to universal education was biting in and kids were, were popping up in schools who puzzled teachers um, that they weren't seemingly not getting, not getting the hang of literacy. And so the first cases really at that time were identified, um, were, were basically written up by, by pediatricians or medics, um, practitioners, and they were written as case studies in some of the kind of medical journals. Originally, it was thought that it was some kind of damage to the brain, which had something to do with visual processing, um, some, some kind of word blindness they talked about. Um, and that's changed over the years or whatever. Um, and, and what was interesting around that time is that some of these people were remarking on the fact that you might get maybe one in a thousand like this, you know, and one person that was quite dismissive of, well, some people even said as many as one as a thousand and basically suggested that was too, nothing like that number. Um, whereas now some people are saying, well, you know, one in five people are dyslexic. So you've got this huge yeah. explosion. Um, it, parallels things a bit like ADHD, I suppose, and autistic spectrum disorder, in the sense that all these things are mass massively expanding. Um, uh, uh, but I think the fact that some people will say, well, one in five is dyslexic, one in 10 is dyslexic, one in six, or whatever, um, all these different numbers, <clears throat> as I wrote in the book, the dyslexia debate, I presented in that book, that people can't be talking about the same phenomenon if you've got this totally different understanding. Yeah. So, so um, what I've tried to do is to, is to try and talk about, about what do people mean by this term and why is that problematic for them? 
Yeah. So in your work, as you were trying to figure out, I want to be able to see it, know it when I see it, right? I think that all of us have that same question. Those of us who are working with kids who struggle with reading. And then of course, then we've got parents who are coming who, who are also frustrated because they can see their kids just not getting it like they want them to. Reading is such a struggle for them. I'm curious about some of your back, you know, just in, in when you were like going through the research, looking at all the ways you could identify uh, dyslexic. What about the brain mapping or, you know, scans and things? Was there any- Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I mean, in, in, when, we, when we wrote this book, The Dyslexic Debate, we've got a whole chapter, which is about brain and genes. Um, that's genetics, not, not, not Levi Strauss. Um, <laughs> um, so we've got a whole chapter about that. The bottom line is, is that neuroscience is really interesting for us to understand you know, how the brain works and, and, the, and, the, and the problem. In terms of the contribution of, of neuroscience or even genetics to understanding what to do when a youngster walks through your door and you've been asked to help them because they can't get literacy skills, they can't read. Yeah. There's almost almost minimal relationship between those two things. Huh. Um, uh, the other thing that's really, really important to stress is that when you see, when you see uh, or hear about um, parts of the brain, which, which, which uh, there's two kinds of brain. There's the structure of the brain, and then there's the functioning of the brain. And you know, the two different sets of scientists look at both, but it's usually the functions of the brain, what's called magnetic resonance uh, functional imaging functional magnetic resonance imaging. It looks at how the brain's sort of working when someone's trying to read. But those studies are studies of poor readers. And one of the things that's really important to get across to people, and because um, and, it's not really expressed that clearly to them, is that these are not studies of a subgroup of dyslexics that differ from other poor readers. These are mm. studies of poor readers. Mm-hmm. And what these studies of poor readers are showing us is that certain areas of the brain seem not to be working that much mm-hmm. when, you, when, when, when you compare them, poor readers, with skilled readers. And what you also find is that if you get those poor readers reading better, you'll see a change in the function of the brain, which mirrors that additional better performance. For clinical educational purposes, it's kind of so what? Yeah. You know, why does it, what does that tell you? What does it tell you about an individual? Because you can't use these studies to make a clinical diagnosis of an individual. You can't use these studies to inform yourself about what to do about it. And you don't need these studies to know there's a problem with the kids reading because you know that before they've walked through your door or the teacher yeah. knows that. Yeah. So one of the problems is that we get very excited about this very high tech kind of science, which has huge potential for the future. But for, for people like me who come from a very practitioner background originally, it, it is, is a mythology to believe that this is of any help to you at the current time. It's not. Yeah. 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 Other maybe, I guess, to confirm what you already see is that this kid's struggling with reading, but you're right. It doesn't move us down the road any further, for sure. Not, not, absolutely yeah. not. No. Um, but it doesn't mean to say we shouldn't be doing blue skies research or getting people looking at that, because maybe in 10 years time, yeah. someone will be able to say, this brain study tells us that what we should be doing with this kid is, I don't know, some kind of phonics program. Right. And what we should be doing with this kid is some other approach right um what was called aptitude treatment interaction 
where you look at the difference, but we're a million miles away from there yet. We're nowhere yeah. near that. Yeah. Um, what would people who are, you know, true believers of the dyslexic as, a, as an identification, as a term, what, what would their arguments be? How they know or believe that dyslexia is a thing? Oh, right. Well, this is why it's, that's why it's complicated. Let, let me try and get my head around this one as best I can in time we've got. <laughs> Yeah, you can. You, yeah, there are all sorts of kids out there who don't read, all right? struggle with literacy. And kids have some kind of comorbidity, so they might be a bit more clumsy, a bit uh, more trouble working memory, a little bit. All sorts of things that kids like this, who poor readers, are more likely to have. And you could, for as a shorthand, use the term dyslexia. It comes from the original Greek, as your problem with reading, as it were. Um, so you could use dyslexia as a kind of generic term to describe kids who struggle with literacy. Where it gets tricky is when you start making clinical diagnoses which lead you to have dyslexic goats and non-dyslexic sheep, where you are differentiating between those people with some kind of diagnostic test. Because what the reality is, is that you cannot do this. You've got a child who's 10 years old, who's, who's reading at roughly a six-year level, um, and they come to you for an assessment before they've come so it's clear so i'll put my hand over the mic there it's clear before they've come that they have a significant reading difficulty before they've come and of course you've checked out that it's not to do with some kind of visual thing you know it's not that they can't read a text and need glasses or they've got a hearing impairment need hearing um, yeah. aids of some kind or something like that yeah. but we're talking about the sorts of kids who would normally go for an assessment of this kind um what, what I've argued in, the, in everything I've done, and no one has been able to counter this, is there are no criteria yeah. for making a determination that this 10-year-old reading at the six-year level is dyslexic, and that 10-year-old yeah. reading at, at six-year level is not dyslexic. Yeah. So, so a year or two ago, I got, a, I got an email from, from someone, and it's one of those angry ones, and it said, uh, yeah, dear, dear Professor Elliot, um, you know, you should be absolutely, uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're an absolute disgrace. You know, um, my wife is an expert diagnostician and, you know, she, she does this and you know, she knows how important it is for kids to get diagnosed, et cetera, et cetera. Blah, de, blah, de, blah. You want to pull yourself together and stop being a jerk and so on. The man made the mistake of leaving his mobile phone number on the bottom of his email address. So as I was wont to do, I phoned him up straight away. And I said, oh, hello, this is uh, Julian Elliott, Durham University here. Thank you ever so much for, for your email telling me, um, uh, you know, being quite forceful with your opinions, but thank you for sharing those with me. I do appreciate you taking the trouble to get in touch. Whereupon, of course, any people who often are very um, aggressive in emails yes. change their stance a lot once you're talking to them. And, and so he, he said, oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I hope you don't mind me doing this, but I did feel a little bit put out. Anyway, so I went on a bit and I said, could you just do me one favor? You've mentioned about your wife, um, who, who's very good at, you know, very, very skilled and has diagnosed loads of dyslexic children. Uh, can you just share with me what criteria does she use to determine whether a child is dyslexic or not? Given if you had two kids and they're both 10 years old and both reading at six year level, what would be the criteria that would make her know that one was dyslexic, one wasn't? Yeah. And there was a long silence. And he <laughs> said, clinical expertise. Oh. And I said, oh, well, that's very interesting, clinical expertise, but you know, please forgive me. Um, that doesn't really butter any parsnips. What do you mean by clinical expertise? We can't have a secret garden 
right? Yeah. So what would what you know what informs the clinical expertise, right? You might say there's some tacit knowledge in there. There must be some, some must be some elements of this which would inform it, which we then can make explicit and share with all the other clinicians. Otherwise, everyone's got different clinical expertise coming up with different judgments. And how do we know whether or not anyone's making any sense? Yeah. And he and he couldn't answer that question, of course. And for 30 years, I have asked those people who believe you can diagnose dyslexic, differentiate those two kinds of kids. I have asked to tell me the criteria and they have signally, signally failed to be able to tell me them. And yeah. in, the, in the paper that I've written called, uh, it's time to be scientific about dyslexia, which you, anyone can download. It's, it's really downloadable on the internet because my university paid for it to be an open access. In this paper, I go through all the different kinds of arguments that people have put forward to explain why you can't at the clinical level make this decision. So coming back to the original question, there's a distinction between saying, oh yeah, my kid's got kind of dyslexic problems. Yeah. And saying, my kid has been diagnosed dyslexic and therefore they need to have this, this, and this, and this. Because the other side of this very important coin is that even if you were to diagnose it, what you would do to intervene would be the same as if you didn't diagnose it, given the fact that this child presents with a reading difficulty. So unlike a medical, if I go to a doctor with a bad knee and I've got a bad knee, I want to know, is it a tumor? Is it an anterior cruciate ligament injury? Is it, is it an infection? Is it, is it, is it you know, is, is it, or whatever is it. Once you've worked out what's wrong with your knee, you then get a treatment that goes with it makes sense surgery or antibiotics or or, or um, you know chemotherapy or whatever um in a sense people believe it's the same thing with dyslexia so my child doesn't read very well i go along i get a dyslexia diagnosis and now having got that diagnosis there's a treatment out there for this child well there's not there isn't a treatment there are various things we need to do for kids with reading difficulties yeah who struggle to decode and we're talking about decoding here. We're not talking about reading comprehension. That's a whole new ball game. That right. is understanding right. what you're reading is something different. The yeah. two things are related, of course. But, but the point is what you do for a child who's falling behind with their reading is the same thing whether you call them dyslexic or not. The third part of all of this, of course, is the argument because you've got your dyslexia diagnosis, therefore you have a right to more resource than a kid who doesn't have a diagnosis, mm -hmm. even though that child's reading at the same level as, as your child. Mm -hmm. and, and that's highly problematic because what we know is of course that the children who get the diagnosis on the whole tend to come from more favored backgrounds, either more affluent or from the kind of backgrounds where they've got parents who, can, who know, how to, uh, know how to advocate on their behalf. And the kids in the cities the kids in the tough areas, they, you don't get many of those diagnosed dyslexic, certainly not in UK. And I've read some reports in the States, which is much the same. Yeah. Yeah. Though you're pointing, you're touching on a point exactly that was kind of in my mind is I think about those who have come to me again, as an educational leader saying, you know, I, I can help these kids with dyslexia. And to me, it's an economic force, right? 
that if I can say that I can fix dyslexia, I actually am going to be drawing more people to me because it's like, a, it's like you said, you know, I'm a, an expert because I'm specifically treating this malady, uh, which is different than saying, I, you know, I support kids in getting better in their reading. I, I feel that there's some economic kind of influences oh, there huge. that kind of kept that dyslexia at the forefront. Yeah. In the, um, in the paper I've written, the, the one I mentioned just now, um, I've, put a, I've linked it to a, a website. And this website is basically all about, about industry and big pharma and money and so yeah. on. And, and there you can go there. And now you, get, you can get these kind of website announcements, which is about how much of this dyslexic industry is now worth. Yeah. And it is billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the point is uh, um, that what we should be trying to do is come up with really good treatments, interventions for children who struggle to learn to read. That's the, that's the population we're interested in. It's not subdividing that population. It's all of that population. So one of the things, yeah, another argument that people put forward for dyslexia, um, which you can understand from the point of view of a parent, an individual. And this argument is that when, once I've got my, once my child has been diagnosed with dyslexic, I can look them in the eye and say, it's not your fault. Sure. You're not, it's not your fault. You're not stupid or whatever. Um, and so this is really a powerful diagnosis for the self-esteem of my child. The problem with that is that is that is a zero sum game. If you say you've got to have the dyslexia diagnosis before you can say to someone it's not their fault. What about those poor readers who don't have the diagnosis? So are those people any more culpable? Are they any more stupid? Are they any more yeah. um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, any, are they more indolent? Are they less willing to? Are their parents more fat? No, none of these things are right. And so, therefore, what we should be doing is making sure that all children um, are put in a position where they don't feel stupid, they don't feel silly, yeah. um, they don't feel culpable. Yeah. Um, and and you don't need the dyslexia label for that, unless we were to use the dyslexia as a term for all kids uh, who yeah. struggle to learn to read. We could do that. That'd be fine. We'd have yeah. a problem with that. Right. It's this split. It's this split that's problematic. Um, there's still a lot of belief out there that IQ, that dyslexics are high IQ, poor readers, and that's been knocked on the head clearly by research. <laughs> yeah. um, so clearly. What's an interesting paradox is if you go to the websites of the major dyslexia organisations, both the international and UK organisations, they argue that dyslexia, as they understand dyslexia occurs across the full intellectual spectrum. In other words, across the full IQ range. Now, of course, if you're talking about someone who's, who's, you know, who's the sort of person who can't function independently, right. we're not talking about those. We're talking about the kind of people who get an assessment um, for dyslexia, the sort of people you would find in mainstream schools generally. Um, and what those websites say is that any of those guys can have dyslexia. So, so they say that on their websites, but at the same time, People who are part of those organizations doing assessments are using the IQ tests and still using the discrepancy between IQ performance and reading performance to diagnose dyslexia. There's no scientific mm -hmm. backing for that. Their own organization doesn't back it, but it still happens a great deal. Why? Because um, those who pay for these services want, um, want to, these people to, to, to separate out the whole IQ issue from reading. Yeah. The point is, we shouldn't. We should be separating them. They're, they're two unrelated sets of skills. IQ intelligence is measured by IQ. It has no relationship to decoding. 
right. it is linked to comprehension because comprehension actually involves more high level cognitive functioning. Sure. But decoding is actually a dead straightforward, dead simple thing as long as you as long as you can do it. If you can't do it, it's very very difficult. Right. But it, but it's not a high level cognitive thing like reading a piece of text and making inferences and, and, and going beyond the information in the text and understand what's happening here. Yeah. You know, um, everything you're telling me is spot on from my own experience in my own schools and in my own educational career and working with teachers and families and special education support, et cetera. So I think that what you're talking about is really important. And, and I'm good, like you say, either everybody gets to be dyslexia or, you know, have dyslexia or, yeah, let's not even bother with that because the truth is the kid just needs some help with reading and we need to find a way to help provide some support and services for the, for the kids. So I think you've brought forward some really um, I think powerful aspects of what many have just been taking for granted and uh, mm. might be time for us to move past this and just continue to support kids. If, if I could just add one thing, um, one of the things about kids who have literacy difficulties of this kind is they're more likely, as I mentioned earlier, to have associated difficulties, like their working memory, their processing, clumsiness, organization. Yeah. They're more likely to be anxious. They're more likely to have challenging behavior. They're more likely to do a whole bunch of things. Yeah. But none of those things are symptoms or indicators of a condition called dyslexia. Yeah. All we're saying is that if you've got a reading problem, you might imagine there's slightly more chance that the, these other things are there. But what a good person, an assessor, would, a good teacher would be doing is would be checking out, okay, she's got this reading difficulty. This is how we address reading difficulties. Let's keep our eyes open for these other kinds of things because we might have to address those things as well. Mm -hmm. But what you can't do is diagnose dyslexia on the basis of those other comorbid features. Yeah, yeah, excellent. You know, our last question, Joe, is uh, a little bit off of our dyslexia topic and it's a little more personal, but we like to ask our guests that if you could travel in a time machine and go back and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give uh -huh. your younger self? Well, uh, yeah, thanks. I, uh, two things here, really. One, one is more facetious, right? So in lockdown, uh, when lockdown came about, um, I took a couple of the dumbbells out of the college gym that I run. And, and I started, I tried being like a complete idiot. Um, I did lateral lifts, which is when you stick your arms out to the side and you lift them up. I, and be, trying to short circuit this and get a, what's called a ripped body really quickly, I... <laughs> I lifted weights which were too high for me and I've ripped my rotator cuff on my shoulder. Now I can hardly get my shirt on in the mornings. And what I'd love to be able to do is to go back about six months and say, for goodness sake, if you're gonna start doing that, don't try and be Arnie Schwarzenegger when you first start with the weights. <laughs> the more serious answer to your question is, my father died when I was eight, nearly nine. I can't remember much at all about him. Um, very, very small. And you know, if I had any, if I was thinking this seriously, I'd love to go back before then and have some way of capturing more about what he was like. Yeah. Some way, either taping, audio tape, we didn't have videotape, of course, in those days, maybe an audio tape or just some means of knowing a bit more about him than he is now, because that's yeah. my probably my regret, but. Yeah. Very good. Thank you so much. Please be careful with the weights. I've had shoulder injuries and that is so painful. We have no idea how much we need our shoulder, right? For everything. Oh, not, not, uh, not, not until now. <laughs> I didn't realize until now. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, I want to thank you also for just taking time out of your schedule. I know that you are busy. You are doing some important work, and for you to squeeze us in means a lot. And we very much appreciate your time. So have a great rest of your day. Okay. Yeah. Thank you ever so much. Love you too. All right. Nice talking to you. Bye bye. Bye.